I'm your average everyday American citizen who cares about his country and the people in it. I care about the world and the way the world views America. Given these trying times that America faces today, I like to look at the issues and attack them with an objective mind. So maybe one day I won't feel so blue in this red state. And hello, this is Eric Erickson on feeling blue in a red state. It's been a while since we've talked. Um, we've had a lot of, had a lot going on uh, recently. Um, and uh, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but um, there is still an issue with this country uh, that I believe is more crippling than than anything else, than any other problem that we have in this country, um, which there are plenty. I, I definitely believe that. But this one, this one seems like it shouldn't be so hard to fix, but yet it has been a problem for decades. Of course, I'm talking about mass incarceration. Mass incarceration and just... Um, just our justice system as a whole. Um, with mass incarceration, what I mean is from 1970 to today, there's been a 700% increase in prison population. 700%. We went from having a couple hundred thousand to now over 3 million uh, prisoners. That Now we, as a country, as the United States, represent only about 5% of the world's population, yet we house 25% of the inmates, of all inmates in the world. We house 25% of them, yet we only make up less than 5% of the population of the world. Now, this is uh, a very startling number. It's not one of those things that you uh, that you want to be number one in, but yet we are. We're number one. We incarcerate more people per capita than anybody else. It's not even close. Um, and not only do we do that, but we also do it in a manner that is disproportionately um, geared towards minorities. I'll give you an example. One in three black males will end up in prison. One in three. One in six Latino men will end up in prison. One in 17 white men will end up in prison. Okay. Now, people might be thinking, well, maybe they just commit more crimes. And maybe, maybe they do. But I don't think they commit that many more crimes. I don't think that that is, uh, I don't think that, uh, that race plays such, an, such a part in um, the commission of crime as it does in the um, enforcement of crime and the, uh, you know, the arresting of criminals. I think uh, white people in general get more breaks. I think that cops tend to look the other way more with white people than they do any others. Um, and I think that, uh, that poverty, poverty obviously drives these numbers a lot too. Uh, as I've mentioned in the past, um, poverty is, is the biggest deciding factor when it comes to crime. What I mean by that is that, and, and as, as you look at the numbers, the, the two things that have a direct correlation are median household income and crime rate. As the median household income goes up, the crime rate goes down. As the median household income goes down, the crime rate goes up. And this is true across all racial divides. So when you really think about it, the best way to combat crime the best way 
would be to provide opportunities to people to get themselves into a better financial situation. If you do that, if you create opportunities for people to get out of poverty, you could lower the crime rate without hiring another single officer, without building another single prison, without doing anything but just that. I know it sounds crazy. I know that a lot of people are like, well, I don't know how you get people out of poverty. And, and uh, to that, I say, they just need help getting to where you're at. If you are somebody who is financially secure, take some time and go down and uh, to the next, to the ne- the people in you know the tax bracket or the class that's just one lower than you and help them get to where you're at. Chances are that they're willing to put in the work. They just don't know where to put in the work. Help them, point them in the right direction. Give them some pointers, give them some tips. You know, give them like, you know, a a scoop or something. Tell them how to get where you're at, how you did it. And um, and genuinely, don't say, well, you just go to work hard and pull up your bootstraps. I'm so sick and fucking tired of hearing that shit. They, if you want to go, like, if you wanted to really, really help and make a real impact, if you're a businessman and you're making a lot of money, go down to the projects, find the people, find the guys down there that are busting their ass trying to make a living and show them where to channel that work ethic, where to channel that drive, how you did it. And so they can channel that, that, um, all of that, you know, that drive that they have towards things that are actually going to help them financially. Right now, what we have is we have a whole class of people that are working really, really hard and not getting anything to show for it. A majority of the people that are struggling, that are really struggling, are people that are working two jobs or people that are working a lot of overtime at one job and they're just not making enough to make, you know, to, to make their life any better. But there are people out there probably people listening right now that know how to do that, that know how to, how to either invest their money or how to, um, or what jobs to take, what jobs have a future, what jobs don't have a future and what, and, and how to, you know, how to get hired at these jobs that uh, do provide a decent living, a decent wage and decent benefits. If you do that, think about all of the money this government will save. Think about all of the money that we could we could use to channel towards education. If you have less people in poverty, you have less people on welfare, you have less people on food stamps, you have less people on you know state funding, you know state insurance. You have less people on all of these programs that are that are you know basically extorting money from from the government. You have people that can handle it on their own if you just teach them how to do it. I just don't understand the, uh, the need. Like right now, it seems like we almost have a need, uh, you know, for somebody to look down on. Like we, we need that class below us that we can look down on and say, well, they're just, they're lazy or they're not working that hard or they just want, they just want something for nothing. 
when that that's not even the case. Sure, there are people like that. I I mean, obviously there are. There's always going to be. But I don't think that's the majority of poor people. Poor people don't want to stay poor. People that are on state aid don't want to be on state aid. They want to make money like everybody else. They just haven't found a way to do it yet. And that is true. So, if we want to lower these incarceration numbers, the first thing I think we need to do is lower the poverty numbers. If we lower the poverty numbers, we will systematically change the number of people that we have incarcerated. Now, there are instances that are, you know, and there are inmates right now that are in prison that um, that number should already have changed because they're in there for bullshit reasons. Right now, we have... And this is kind of crazy. Uh, we have uh, in California alone, I always use them because their their example is pretty extreme, but um, every state has you know some form of this. But in California, they have 3,000 inmates serving life sentences that have never committed a violent crime. They've never committed a violent crime. Think about that. They have never committed a crime that actually had a victim. And what I mean by that is, is they're in there on, on drug charges. They're in there on drug charges. And more specifically, they're in there on marijuana charges. Now, we have 3,000 life sentences for nonviolent offenses, 3,000 of those people. And of those 3,000, 2,000 are in there for something that's not even illegal anymore in that state. They're in there on pot charges. It's, pot's perfectly legal in California. It's for recreational use. They're allowed to do it now. But do they let these prisoners out? No, they don't. They leave them in there. And, and it's just, it just baffles me that, that, uh, that a state could say, okay, well, we're going to make this, this, um, you know, this thing that used to be a crime, we're going to make this legal now. And all the people that are in prison for it, um, we're going to leave them there because it was illegal when when they did it. Even though it's a, it's an act that's completely accepted now. I <laughs> I don't understand this. I don't understand this. See, Illinois when they um, when they made recreational pot uh, legal in their state, they released the prisoners that uh, that were in there on drug charges, or at least on that drug charge. Um, and. Ha- a lot of people may be asking, how how does this happen? How does this happen? How does how does there end up being three thousand people for nonviolent offenses in prison and two thousand? How, how does this even happen? Well, it dates back to the um, to the war on drugs, uh, which I mean, as everybody knows, was a complete failure. But um, d- because of the war on drugs, possession of marijuana became a felony in California. Possession of marijuana became a felony, and under state law, it, it, because of the war on drugs, three felonies of the same classification, uh, they had a three strike law. So if you got three like felonies, then you got a life sentence. So essentially possession of marijuana became a felony. And then if you got three possessions of marijuana, you got a life sentence. So you're, you're looking at, you're looking at people in there that, that really are not criminals. They really shouldn't be in there. They're not hardened criminals. And they're in there serving the same amount of time as somebody who was a serial killer. Now, and 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 if somebody that kills somebody but but doesn't plan it, you know, like somebody that gets murdered too, they get less time than somebody that got caught with possession of marijuana. Now, in our justice system, I understand that we have to have laws and we have to have rules, but we should use a little common sense when it comes to shit like this 
when you look at it and you say, okay, well, here's this guy. He killed somebody at a bar one day and um, we're going to give him 10 years. But uh, this person that gets caught with a dime bag in their pocket, we're going to put them in there for life. No victim. No, I just don't understand it. And, and when it comes to this kind of thing, I think we need to use a little bit of common sense, a little bit of common sense to say, hey, you know what? This person isn't really hurting anybody. That What they did is is 100% legal now. Let's let them out. Let's let them out. Throw them a bone. Let them be a productive member of society. A lot of them were productive members of society upon being arrested. So, so you have you have shit like that, and and then you've also got like the Innocence Project, who's exonerated. Listen to this: of every ten people or every nine people that are on death row, it's hypothesized that one of them is innocent of every nine, and they've actually gotten exonerated. Where they got this uh, hypothesis from is that they've exonerated one out of every nine people that's on death row because they were actually found to be innocent and they have executed hundreds of innocent people. How many innocent people have to die before we realize that this form of punishment is not the answer? The answer to that is one. If one innocent person dies, then that should be enough. And it wasn't. It wasn't. We just keep doing it. There's been a hundred exonerated death row inmates now just because just since the innocence project started a hundred people that have been exonerated because they were actually innocent a lot of them spent decades in prison on death row because for a crime they didn't even commit and and the reason they were in there and that too is also disproportionately black and our prison system when you look at it when you just look at it okay black people make up 13% of the population and they make up 66% of the inmates that are in prison that has to stand out to everybody that has to be an alarming figure that and and they've done things in the past that have kind of perpetuated this they've done things in the past that have caught, been the cause of of so many African Americans stuck in the system that uh, they're they're serving long sentences, so that percentage just stays up. And I'll give you an example of how they did this and how they how they were racist without appearing racist. What they did was they uh, they had like in the eighties and the nineties, well the late like the mid to late eighties and then the early nineties there was the crack epidemic, and they're like, okay, well what we're gonna do is we're going to charge these people with trafficking anytime we catch them with crack. Well. Be, crack was disproportionately abused by African Americans. Meanwhile, cocaine, which was the, is the exact same drug, it's cocaine and crack are the same. The only difference is, is you smoke crack and you snort coke, but the but they're the same drug with the same amount of dangers and the same risk to your health. Everything is the exact same. One's just free based and one's not. So what they did was, but the main difference was is that cocaine was especially during that time was used by. Uh, upper class whites where crack was used by poor blacks. So what they did and how and how they how they were able to persecute blacks without persecuting whites was they made the penalties different for these two drugs that were essentially the same drug. So if you got caught with five grams of crack, you got trafficking, you got a 20-year sentence. And if you got caught, it took 500 grams of coke to get the same um, amount of years. So so that's how so that's why there's so many crack addicts in prison and hardly any coke addicts because they made the penalties so much different, even though it is the same exact drug. It, it, I cannot express that enough. It is the same thing. So they, they are targeting black people. A lot of people will say, well, no, they're targeting drug addicts. And that's, 
That's sort of true to an extent, but these people weren't probably hurting anybody. Now, if they were robbing somebody or whatever, then then bust them on the robbery, but don't bust them on the drug possession and give them trafficking. That's ridiculous. Get you know, get them the help they need. If they're on crack and they and you know and they're possess- and they're in possession of crack, get them some help. Let's and you know what? If we if we would do that, as opposed to uh, what we do now, which um, our uh, our system to help addicts is to lock them up and put them in prison it's because we think that that'll scare them and deter them from doing it again. But that's not what happens right now. Our prison system, like when somebody's released that there, there's a 70% chance that they end up back in prison. 70%. Every other country has got a lower percent of, you know, ending up back there. Like, uh, like take Sweden and well, let's, let's use Norway as an example. They focus mainly on um, on rehabilitation. So when they have and no matter what the crime is, but their prisons are geared towards rehabilitation, and they spend a lot of money and they spend a majority of their resources on rehabilitating these criminals to get them back into society. And when they do release them into society, they can they can be productive. So they teach them skills. They um, they school them if they need it, and they really work on the rehabilitation side of it. And and they're the people, the percentage of uh, people that end up back in prison in Norway as opposed to the United States is crazy different. Twenty only twenty percent of them end up reoffending and back in prison, where in the United States it is seventy percent. Now, a lot of that has to do with the way our parole system works. I mean, there's a lot of things that are wrong with our justice system. And and right now, I'm just kind of speeding through these uh, reasons, uh, but we're going to slow it down now and gonna, and kind of start well, from the start, you know, we'll, uh, and we'll just kind of go through every phase of the correct or every phase of the justice system and, uh, and break it down as to where we could make changes. And maybe, uh, maybe we could see some positive things come out of this. I think uh, the way we police is got to be uh, number one priority because that's how you enter the justice system is with an arrest and a police officer makes that arrest. So it makes the most sense to me that that's where we start. So yeah, let's start um, with the police and um, the, the desperate, the desperate need for reform that we have in the way that we police here in this country. Um, just to throw out some numbers, um, we of all wealthy and uh, advanced countries, out there, we kill or our police kill more than any other. Um, the way they do the statistics are the number of people killed by the police per 10 million uh, in population in the U.S. is at 33.5, and the next closest is Canada at 9.8. Um, Australia is at 8.5, the Netherlands at uh, 7.3, New Zealand at 2, Germany at 1.3. England at 0.5, Japan at 0.2, and in Iceland and Norway, they don't kill anybody ever. Um, uh, the totals per year, just to give you an, an idea of how many people we're talking about here, in the U.S., every year, we're over 1,000. Over 1,000 people are killed by the police. Uh, in Canada, that number was 36. Australia, it's 21. Germany, it's 11. England, 3. We are at 1,099, 1,100 people. And the next closest is 36. 
And a lot of people say, well, it's because we have guns in this country. You know, the police have to worry about guns. In Canada, they have very similar gun laws as, as we do. Uh, their population has a lot of guns too. And they have 36. So don't give me that bullshit. Um, one of the main reasons, I think, is, um, well, there's a couple of things that I think actually are to blame for these um, crazy and disturbing numbers, um, is the kind of person that um, that the police attract, I guess. The kind of person that, uh, that uh, the culture of the police in America attract to apply for that job. I think the mentality of the officer has a lot to do with it. And um, another thing is the amount of training that they do receive. Uh, we spend $160 billion on the police every year. Every year we spend that. And only 5% of all arrests are for serious crimes that put an actual danger to society. Only 5%. The rest of them are petty misdemeanor crimes that seem you know, seem like they don't really matter. But the problem is, is some of these charges, you know, such as like trespassing and jaywalking and stuff like that. Some of these petty theft is another one. Uh, they carry serious financial burdens to the defendants. And they also carry serious financial burdens to society itself because they have to now pay for a trial. There's a generally a court-appointed lawyer. And then there's also the jail time, the, the amount of money that it costs to house an inmate. Now, the, the fines uh, for poor people can cause um, kind of like a domino effect. Uh, first of all, they are in jail, so they if they do have a job, they're going to miss work and you know potentially be fired. Uh, they also, if you know if they are poor, they can't afford to pay a fine. So in turn, the non-payment of fines causes the loss of a driver's license and. Anybody that, and as a person who has lost their driver's license before, I can, I definitely can uh, feel, feel their pain because once you lose your license, they make it very hard for you to get it back. It took me 14 years to get mine back. Um, so, so, and then if you know, if you don't pay your fines long enough, then they will put you in jail for it. But anyways, so going back to the training that um, officers receive, and I think this has a lot to do with, uh, with why our police are so violent when that's not really their job. Their job is not to be violent. Their job is actually to de-escalate violent situations. But the training required uh, to be a police officer in this country is about 600 hours. About 600 hours of training is what they get. Uh, to give you an example of uh, what other countries require to be a police officer, in Finland, they require 5,500 hours. I'll repeat that. We require 600. They require 5,500. Guess how many police shootings they have every year? Zero. Germany requires 4,000 hours of um, training in order to be a police officer. Australia, 3,500 hours. England, 2,500 hours. Canada, 1,200 hours. Us, 600 hours. The next closest is Canada, and they still have twice as many hours of training they're required to do. And of our absurdly low amount of training, they spend nearly 100 of those hours on firearms training and only about 20 hours on de-escalation training. The average American in this country 
is 10 times more likely to be killed by a police officer than by a terrorist. 10 times more likely to be killed by a police officer than a fucking terrorist. <laughs> Meaning that the police officers are the terrorists. The ones that we have to worry about as society are not the, you know, the terrorists from overseas. They're the terrorists that us as citizens pay to protect us. They're the ones killing us. We're more likely to be killed by the people who are paid for by us to protect us than we are by Al-Qaeda or anybody else. And not to just bring an issue without a solution, I, um, I've thought a lot about this, and I don't know the answer as to what can be done. There's clearly an answer. There's clearly an answer, and what I think maybe we need to do is maybe go to one of these other countries and see we need to swallow our pride and realize that we are not the best country in the world at everything. And clearly, we're not the best in the world at policing. We're one of the worst. So, that being said, we need to swallow our pride and go do, do a study on how it is that, let's just say England, for example, they speak our language. It would be super easy to go over there. They're allies of ours and we could just job shadow them and see what it is they do. What do their cops do? Why is it that they only kill three people every year and we kill 1100? Why is that? The only way to find out is to go over there and see. I imagine they would probably be okay with that, but we don't do it. Another thing we could do is we could do an in-house study. What If we know that this is a problem, which we clearly do, people know that this is a problem, why aren't we doing anything about it? We're not passing any legislation. We're not doing anything about it. It's like we've just accepted that the cops are going to be out of control and we just move to the next issue. Like that's, like that's not an issue at all, but it is an issue. It, it's a serious issue. And the fact that we're doing nothing about it is absurd. It's absurd. And I get tired of hearing these, you know, these phrases. Oh, well, it's a few bad apples. Don't let a few bad apples. But you know what? It's not a few bad apples. It is not just a few bad apples. If it were, there would just be a few shootings. But there's not just a few. In England, they have a few bad apples. Here, we have an entire Force. We have a whole tree full of bad apples. It is out of control. Now, I'm not suggesting, and I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it that you know that I'm that that I'm saying that all cops are bad. I'm not saying that. I know there are good cops out there. I've, of course, there are. There are good people that became police officers for the right reasons and do their job the right way. I'm not saying that there aren't. But there are so many that are not doing it. They are not cops for the right reason, and they're not doing the right things. And the other problem is this, this gang mentality that our police officers have to where they protect their own. They protect their own. They, they may witness some, you know, one of their fellow officers doing something bad. Well, if they keep that quiet and they brush that under the rug, then they're not a good cop either. Obviously, the guy committing the infraction is a bad cop, but if the other cop doesn't say something or doesn't stop them from doing something like that violates people's civil liberties or that, uh, that is hurting somebody or anything, if they don't say anything or at least at the very least report it to a supervisor, then they are not a good cop either because their job 
is to protect us. It's not to protect each other. Their job is to protect us. And if they know that there is a guy on their team that is committing infractions against the people they swore an oath to protect, then they are doing their job poorly. They're a bad cop. They're not good at their job and they should be punished. The cop that commits excessive force should be fired that day. They should not get their job back. They should not get a write-up. They should be fired. Everybody or every place I've ever worked, every place that I've ever worked has had a zero tolerance policy when it comes to violating safety precautions. If you put yourself or another coworker in danger, then you are fired on the spot, but not the cops. They have files for, you know, police complaints, you know, police brutality complaints and stuff like that. If they are, you know, committing an act of police brutality, they are putting that person's safety at risk and they should be fired that day. No questions asked. They should just be fired, walk out the door, take get their badge, their gun and go somewhere else and work. But we should not tolerate that. There should be a zero tolerance policy for that no matter what. There should never be a file on an officer. The file should be empty. And if it's not empty, then they should not be a cop anymore. They get, be, they get called during difficult situations. But other than that, most cops don't need to be armed. And they aren't in other countries. And when you look at the numbers, you see why we have so many more. When you don't have a bunch of people bringing guns to a situation that maybe doesn't we have far too many cops out there that are so quick to use force that it's it should never be their first option is to use force. And when it is the only option to use force, deadly force should not even be a consideration until the, that should be the last resort. Anything, anything non-lethal should come up first. You know, there are other countries out there, actually all other countries. Um, we're the only country that arms our entire police force. We're the only country that does that. In England, only like 20% of their cops have, have guns. The rest of them don't have guns. You know, the ones that enforce traffic laws and stuff like that. You don't need a gun to give me a ticket for speeding. You don't need a gun for that. All you're doing by bringing that gun to that situation is you are escalating that situation and you're adding an unnecessary danger to that situation that doesn't need it. It doesn't need it. Cops that are issuing traffic violations should not have guns. They should not. They should not be armed. Cops that are responding to, you know, noise complaints and that are, you know, whatever, whatever other, you know, crime that's not really a serious crime. There should be a small number of specialist officers who have been trained in de-escalation and have had extra training on on how to handle tough situations, those cops can be armed. And there should be a small number of those. Doesn't warrant a gun, you know? Like what you're doing by bringing... And another thing is, is our cops are so quick to pull their weapon. And now what you're doing is you're adding, you're escalating a situation that probably could have been handled without that. You know, when somebody, especially a minority, gets a gun pointed at them, 
Their first instinct is to run. Of course it is. Somebody's pointing a gun at you. You're going to run to try to save your life. There's been, when the cops are killing more people than terrorists, then of course, if a terrorist pointed a gun at you, you would run. Well, the cops, you're 10 times more likely to be killed by a police officer. So when they point a gun at you, you fucking run. Of course you do. Of course, anybody, especially minorities are going to do that. And then they get shot for doing that. It's a, it's a no-win situation. The only way to fix this, I think, obviously, aside from more training, because I definitely think we need to do that, and we need to focus and channel a lot more of it towards de-escalation, I think that has to happen when we do when we start thinking about how we reform policing. But what I think a lot of it is, is, is we have this culture and the police that these kind of actions are okay, that it's okay to beat up a suspect. It's okay to shoot a suspect if you think he might have a gun or because the call said that they thought he was armed, even though, you, you know, an anonymous person calls 911 and said, hey, this guy's walking down the street with a gun. You just automatically take their word for it and shoot the guy. I don't think so. That's not okay. And another thing is if we are going to have guns be a part of our society, then the possession of a gun should not be a reason for the police to shoot you. If we are going to arm our public and say that it's okay and perfectly legal for them to carry a weapon, then the possession of that weapon should not be justification for the police to shoot you. I'm sorry, Second Amendment people, but you can't have it both ways. If it's okay for you for me to carry a gun then the cops better not be able to fucking shoot me for having a gun too and if they and if if they try to use that as an excuse that should not be that should not be a defense that should not be an allowed defense for them to use if we are going to say that the guns are perfectly legal for us to ca- to have and to carry so that can't be an excuse for how we have so many it's how we have so many killings as opposed to other countries is because we allow guns. Well, you know what? Since they are allowed, that should not be the, a reason for a cop to shoot you. But we have this culture in, in our police system right now that, uh, that it basically says that these actions are okay, that it's okay to beat up a suspect. It's okay to shoot a suspect that's fleeing. It's, you know, that all these things are okay. And then we have, then we have other officers, you know, the whole thin blue wall of silence, you know, that they don't testify. They don't, they don't report fellow officers and whatever. That's got to go away. That's got to go away. Cause like I said, even a person who doesn't commit, you know, police brutality, but is there and a witness to it, if they don't uh, file a complaint, a report or whatever it is that they have to file, if they don't turn, you know, turn that uh, information over to a superior for an investigation, then they are just as bad as the person doing it. And they should be not, they should not be a cop either because they are not protecting us. They are allowing this person to do this. So what we need to do is go through and do sweeping fundamental changes to the culture that, uh, that are, that is our police department. And a radical way to do this, and I think we may be to the point where it's going to take some sort of radical change in order to make the necessary differences that we need to make in order to get our police under control. Because right now, they're not. Right now, they are the biggest, most powerful gang in the world. That's what we have looking over us. They they stalk people. They harass people. They beat people up. They lock them up. They kidnap them. They put them in jail, and they make them sit there without charging them for a crime. That they intimidate, they plant evidence, they, 
They convict wrong, you know, they they arrest and uh, charge them wrongfully all the time with no evidence. It's absurd and it is sickening and we've got to do change. So what we need to do is we need to sit down and we need to write out what it is we want our police to do, what it is that we as society want and expect from police officers. We get that written down. We get it in black and white, no gray areas where they can just, they can just, you know, manipulate the verbiage in order to suit their needs and create case law that eventually gives them loopholes to do the same bullshit. None of that. It needs to be black and white. And it needs, if they do this, then this always happens. And if they do that, then that always happens. It has to be that way. And if it's not that way, then it's never going to work. So we need to do that. And then what we need to do is go to every station in the country. It's going to take time. I understand that. And it's not going to happen overnight, but it needs to start. You always have to start. Something that's going to take years has to start somewhere. We need to get this ball rolling on this ASAP. So what we need to do is we need, after we've got this set of standards that we are going to require, we need to go to all these and then we just need to re-interview like with a psychiatrist, have them re-enter and make sure that the people that we have in, in that position are mentally capable of handling that job because not it's not for everybody. And some people are going to get fired and that's fine. If they are not, if they don't have the right mentality, then we don't want them there protecting us. We want them. We don't want to arm them, give them badge and power uh, so they can exploit it. So the good cops will continue their job and then we will weed out the bad ones. Uh, I think that that's the only way you can do it. And uh, once you weed out the bad ones though, the cops that were actually genuinely good are going to see themselves in higher ranks. So now instead of having like this toxic sergeant or whatever, you have this good cop that, that's always done the right thing. You have them in a, you know, in a role to where they can mentor the new people coming up that we've already applied these standards to. And then you, that, that's how you start to change a culture. That's how you start to change the way that we police, because a lot of it is, you know, they get trained, you know, new cops that come up out of the academy, then they start getting trained by these cops that are that are prone to these brutality techniques. And then the cycle continues and it snowballs and it gets worse and worse. But you could change it the other way too. You could change it by getting somebody that's really good, like a, the cop that's actually fair, balanced. It doesn't ever use force unless it's absolutely necessary and it's within the guidelines that we set up. And then all of a sudden that is contagious and that spreads throughout the way we police. And then you have police officers that are doing what we as society want them to do because that is ultimately their job. They're paid for by us in order to keep us safe. And if they're not doing that, then what good are they? Okay. But more training, more, you know, a change in culture, uh, going through and resetting the standards is what we need to do with police. I think that is the best and, and disarming a lot of them, I think will help too. Uh, and not requiring them to do so much. You know, the whole defunding the police thing was not saying, let's get rid of all cops. It's saying, let's shift some of the funding to social work. Let's, you know, for, for example, there was a woman who called because she had a schizophrenic son who I believe was autistic as well. She called 911 because he was out of control. He was an adult and she couldn't handle him, but she wanted, you know, 
a social worker or somebody like a doctor to come to uh, help her. And, but the police showed up on the scene first and they ended up shooting him in front of his mother who just wanted him to get help. And, and that kind of thing should never happen. That should never happen. And that's why we need to, this reform needs to happen and we need to start working towards it. And we need to start working towards it now. Democrat, Republican, I don't give a shit what you are. We all need to come together on this because this is, this is something that affects us all. Okay, moving on past the police. Now let's go to um, the courts. Let's go to the prosecuting attorneys because they are next on my list of people who need serious reform. Prosecuting attorneys have, are awarded so much power. They're, uh, they're basically in charge of what, you know, what a defendant is charged with. And a lot of times it isn't much. There's not a lot of evidence. I don't ever want to hear a prosecutor saying, well, we don't know if we've got the right guy, but we're going to go ahead and go move forward with the trial and we'll just see what happens. But what a lot of people don't, don't know is the fact that you're, if that person didn't really do it and you don't even have enough evidence to prove that that person did it, then you're ruining their life unnecessarily because what a lot of people don't realize is that guy doesn't get to go home and await trial. He is in jail, losing his family, losing his job, losing his way of life and losing his freedom while they, you know, why they build a case and why, while they build like a way, you know, a trial strategy. A lot of times people sit in a wait trial for years, years, years of their life of not being even convicted of a crime. They're just sitting there wondering what's going to happen to them on a whim, on a whim. Like, how is that okay? That is not justice. We call it the justice system because it's supposed to provide justice. And when it's not, it should be called out as such. And it's not. I think the way you can fix this is I think you need to start holding these prosecutors accountable for trying the wrong person. There should, there should be no excuse for this. If they put somebody on trial and are found innocent and, and there needs to be some sort of standard, like, okay, not somebody that, you know, gets found innocent, but it was close and there was some evidence that kind of pointed towards them, but they just, you know, they ultimately were found innocent. I'm talking about the people who are obviously innocent, the people that there's no evidence against them. And maybe there's just like one eyewitness or something that puts them there. Those, there should be penalty for that. There should be some sort of repercussions for that or reprimand for that. There needs to be some sort of accountability for that. And I think if there was, you would see a lot less prosecutors pushing cases that are on little to no evidence, maybe a little bit of circumstantial evidence. They should not be able to ruin somebody's life for that. And they do it and they do it all the time. And a lot of times they, they scare them into the into these like long sentences. What they'll do is they'll, they'll dangle these long sentences over somebody's head and they say, you can take it to trial, but if you do, we're going to hit you with the maximum or you can take this deal. We'll give you the minimum. Even if it's something they didn't do, a lot of times people, you know, they don't want to roll the dice on a trial and, and I don't blame them. I don't blame them, but taking it, Taking a case to trial, should you should never get punished for that. You have that right as an American to, have, to be judged by a jury of your peers. And there shouldn't be a penalty for invoking that right. There should not be. They shouldn't be able to say, okay, well, if you do it this way, we're going to hit you with a max. If, if they offer a deal, then if they offer you X amount of years for whatever crime it is, 
then that should be the offer, whether you take the deal or if you take it to trial. If they're willing to let you serve that amount for that crime, it shouldn't matter whether or not you take it to trial or not. That should be the penalty for it. Like the fact that they they barter with your life, like that is not fair. That is not okay. And they should not be able to do that. But they do it all the time. Like 95% of all cases get decided outside of court. And the reason that is, is because people are too scared to take it to trial because they've seen so many people take things to trial and then get hit with the max and then end up spending a big portion of their life in prison. So I'm thinking that if we start, if we put some sort of, you know, reprimand or some sort of um, repercussions for prosecuting attorneys that try people that they think might be innocent or, or even worse, you have a lot of prosecutory misconduct where they don't provide the defense. They don't provide them with exculpatory evidence. So a prosecutor is actually supposed to be required to turn that over, but there's so many loopholes. We need to close all of these loopholes and we need to start holding them accountable to finding justice. That should be their job. If some new evidence comes up that exonerates the defendant, then, then they should be the first ones to say, hey, it's not this guy. It's somebody else. We, we don't know who it is, but we know it's not him. That's justice. That's what they should be doing. That is what they get paid to do. That's their job description is to seek justice. Because if you put the wrong person in prison, the victims don't get justice either. Because the person who really did it is still out there, probably doing it to somebody else. And that is the sad reality of it is how many times they lock the wrong person up, but it, and you know it's ruining that person's life already, but it's not just ruining that person's life. The, especially depending on the crime, you know, the person who really is, you know, guilty of this crime is probably out doing it to somebody else. So now you have a pyramid of victims out there that all this all could have been solved had they had they, you know, tried and convicted the right person instead of just hurrying through a trial and just trying it, they got their conviction. Now they just quit searching for the, you know, for the real culprit. It, it happens all of the time. It happens all of the time. And it's not okay. This is, these are, these are basic, simple things that need, that all we need to do is use a little common sense for. We need to use common sense and, and just look at it and see the flaws and fix the fucking flaws. How hard is that to do? We should all agree on these things. There, there shouldn't be any disagreement with this. We should expect them to do their fucking job and their job is to serve justice and if you're not if you're if you're if the police are stomping on civil liberties and they're arresting the wrong people and they're beating them up and they're you know and they're using unfair interrogation techniques to to draw out false confessions which happens all the time too and then the prosecutors are charging them and trying to railroad them into either taking a deal or God forbid they take it to trial and get hit with the max all of a sudden you've got a completely innocent person serving 20 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit and if it only happened once, it would be a problem. But this happens thousands of times every year. This happens all of the time. We've got so many people. There's thousands. They're saying in the tens of thousands of people in prison right now serving sentences on crimes they did not commit. That is, this is the United States of America, the land of the free. And and to call us that, to 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 you know, embrace that title, we need to start acting like that's actually what we believe because right now it does not seem like it is. 
I hate that I have to get so mad about these kind of things, but it, it's been the same ever since I can remember. And it's not getting any better. In fact, it almost seems like it's getting worse. That brings me to the last problem. The last problem is possibly the worst one. And that's what we have. Um, we have a problem in this country of, well, we, since we lock so many people up all the time and we lock them up for ridiculously long sentences and we run out of cells, we run out of beds for prisoners in our prisons. So what we end up doing to fix this problem is we hire these profit for-profit prisons, these private companies that build prisons that um, that gets them around a lot of the state regulations. They have guards that are not trained as well. The conditions are not as good. They're not held to the same standards as the state-run penitentiaries. They're not as secure. And in turn, if they have empty beds, they will charge the state for not housing it you know, not keeping them at capacity. So essentially they are incentivizing uh, locking people up in order to avoid paying penalties that they charge the state for not keeping them at capacity. This is just absurd. First of all, we should never be, we should, our prison system should not be, um, it should not be a vehicle for profit ever. It never should be, but that's what it's become. You have all of this money they're making on off all these prisoners. They're first of all, they're getting free labor out of them, basically. Then they're also they're charging them, they're overcharging them in a commissary, they're overcharging them for phone calls. They're they they just they've you know they hit them every way they can. And uh and it's, it's turned into a multi-billion dollar business. And it should never have been a business to begin with. Profit or for-profit prisons, privatized prisons should not exist. They should not. They need to go through and they need to close them all down. And if you don't have enough beds to house all of your inmates, then you need to go through and reevaluate the inmates that you do have. And if you've got people in there serving life sentences for fucking pot charges in a state that has legalized pot, then let them go to free up the beds for the criminals that you do have that do deserve to be in prison. That's how you fix, that's how you fix the overcrowding problem. You don't fix it by hiring companies that are only housing inmates to make a profit because they're going to cut costs every way they can like all businesses do. And when they do that, they are going to start trampling on human rights because regardless of what you think these people have done or regardless of what they have done and what you think of these people, they are still human beings. They're still human beings and they still deserve to be treated like a human being regardless of what they've done. You are not you should not be judged as a person by the worst thing that you have ever done. And that's what we do. We do that a lot in this country. And the media pushes that narrative like, okay, well, this guy, you know, this guy uh, did, you know, did a robbery. So he is a piece of shit for life because of this one thing that he did that he probably is really sorry for that he did. Most people are not like without remorse. Most people that are in prison do admit to what they've done and they do have remorse for what they've done. Not because they've been caught, but because they are not bad people and they just made a mistake. And we should, we punish people far too long for making mistakes in this country. And what we do is, especially young people, and we need to come to a point where 
we start having a little bit of compassion for these people. And, and I know it's hard. It's hard to have compassion for somebody who is a criminal, but we've got to do it. We, we're to the point now where as a society, we've become so bitter and we're cold and we don't look at people, you know, that are different from us, maybe culturally or, you know, financially or anything. We look at them, we look down on them as a society and, and that causes um, a contempt and, and it makes us bitter and cold towards these individuals who a lot of times, you know, are just trying to get by and, you know, and maybe they made a mistake. Maybe they were young and stupid. I don't think there is a person in on this planet that doesn't have at least one thing they regret doing when they were, you know, young, when they were in the late teen or early twenties, you know, that they didn't do like everybody has that one thing that they regret and they're ashamed of. Well, these people might only have that one thing too, but they got caught and they're having to pay for that one mistake and to treat them like they are any different than any one of us is to be naive to the fact that yes, teens and early 20s, young people, they make mistakes and they do, but that doesn't mean they can't later be a protect or a productive member of society. It doesn't make them a monster. It makes them a kid that made a mistake. And we've all been a kid that's made a mistake. We all have. I don't care who you are or how holy your life is. Everybody's done something they regret, but not everybody has to pay for it. And we shouldn't be so quick to judge the ones that did get caught and that are paying for that one mistake that they made just because they got caught and we didn't. That doesn't make them worse than us. It doesn't make us better than them. And until we can get that through our head, we're never gonna see things change because that kind of thinking is also contagious. And then you, that's how you end up with these tougher, you know, these tougher policing policies. We need to get the policy you know, get the policy train back on track and start making policies that actually reflect the situation rather than this trumped up narrative that that the media likes to you know push and they like to scare the public into believing. But most people in prison are not bad people. Now there are some that are, of course, but most of them aren't. And most people I know that have either been to prison or are in prison are not dangerous to society. And that's what prisons are for. Prisons were originally built to house the people that are dangerous to the people that they live among, you know, society in general. And the prison system was created to separate the people that are a danger to society from the people from society. Now, if you're in prison and you're not a danger to society, then you are unjustly there. We don't, and that's why our prisons are so full. That's why we've seen the 700% increase in prison population. And that's why we have, that's why there's such a contempt from a lot of us towards the justice system that, that in my opinion, is not handing out near as much justice as it's handing out injustice. The first step in solving a problem is recognizing that there is one. There is a problem here. I hope I've done a good enough job 
pointing the problems out and providing possible solutions because this problem is never going to go away unless we step up, we vote in the right people, we vote in the right legislation, and we start chipping away at this system that is clearly broken. Once we do that, and only once we do that, will this truly be a free country that everyone can enjoy.